Today's message is called At War, Spiritual Warfare 101. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be in these scriptures for a few weeks now, um, studying these. About 15 years ago, I kind of alluded to this in Sunday school, I was between jobs. I got that nice, cushy management job at AMR and went to that to a quality assurance position. Then the... Uh, company got sold to a different company and they decided to eliminate our division. So I got a very generous severance package and part of that severance package means I couldn't work for a while so I took that time to transition going back to being a paramedic and I was taking advantage of it and sleeping in a little bit. About 7.30 in the morning one Tuesday my daughter Haley came and was shaking me awake and said that she got scared by something that she saw on TV. And I'm kind of, you know, half asleep looking over at her. It's like, you know, what's wrong? What, what's going on that, that's scaring you and everything? And, and she said that she saw some, something happening on TV. She's not sure what's going on, but everybody sounds scared. So I should probably get dressed and get on my ambulance so I could go help people. And so I got up, turned, or went into the TV, and I saw, you know, the picture of New York City where one of the Twin Towers was on fire. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened there. And I said, honey, that's in New York City. They're not going to call me for that. And, you know, I said, one of the towers somehow caught on fire. And she said, but, but daddy, you know, a big plane crashed into it. And I said, you saw a plane crash into it? She said, yeah, they keep replaying it. And I'm like, how in the heck does a plane crash into the towers? I mean, that's a major navigational error and all of that. And right then, the second plane hit the towers. And I remember I just sat down and I was booting up my computer to try to catch up on, on what was going on and trying to figure out how do two planes crash into it. And I didn't want to believe what I was seeing. I'm wondering, you know, is this on Fox News or is it on a movie channel or something? Am I, am I watching a movie or is, it, is this something that's going on live? And right then the announcer said that they had reports of a plane hitting the Pentagon. Something snapped in the back of my head. And it was of a book I had read by Tom Clancy of which um, the idea of it is that the United States goes to war with Japan over a trade deal. And at the end of it, a person who had lost several people, or a Japanese person who had lost um, his whole family in that war, decides to pilot a 747 into the Capitol building during a joint session of Congress, wipes out the whole government except for one man. Interestingly, there's a TV show on that um, talks about that right now. And it occurred to me that that is exactly what was going on right now, is people were using weapon or planes as weapons against us. And I realized somebody just declared war upon the United States. This was my generation's Pearl Harbor. And it was that time that Tammy came into the living room just as the first tower fell and asked what was happening. And I said, honey, we just lost or killed at least 5,000 of our people in that tower collapse. I was thinking that the towers were going to be full during that time. Needless to say, America changed that day, didn't it? War had finally come to our shore. It wasn't something that we sent our sons and our daughters off to fight somewhere else. It came to our, to our shores. That's something we weren't used to as a society. But as a Christian... As a Christian who lives for Jesus Christ, this is the norm. 
This is what we deal with every single day. This started about 6,000 years ago. This attack came upon all of us. And it was a sneak attack by a cowardly enemy that's bent on our destruction. Just like the September 11th attacks were an attempt by a terrorist regime to cripple a people, this attack that came upon us as Christians was sneaky. It was completely unexpected by its target, and its result changed everything. I'm talking today about the spiritual rebellion of Satan against God. And that's going to be our focus this morning as we continue our study in Ephesians chapter 6. Have your Bibles ready because we're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures today besides the one that we are about to read. So I'm going to read Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 from the English Standard Version. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, that you didn't have us down here guessing at what's going on, but you tell us specifically in your word what is happening, what is going on and what we should do to react against it. So, Father, be with us today as we look through your word. Help us to understand the nature of this conflict, and even more so, how to be victorious during it. Father God, we ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to take apart these two verses this morning. We have to understand the reality of this great spiritual conflict that seems to be raging around all of us. It's, it's largely unseen. We don't notice it all the time, but its effects can be felt throughout our world, throughout our culture, throughout our country, our neighborhoods, and especially in our families. And just like you can't see the wind, but you only know it through its effects, this conflict affects every single part of our lives every single day that we exist on this earth. There is one thing I want to say this morning before we dig deeply into this subject, and that's this. Today we're going to study our enemy. We're going to study about his kingdom. Saying that, I want to do this from a biblical perspective. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about this subject because the Bible's purpose isn't to, to talk about Satan and his kingdom. The Bible's purpose is to reveal to us God's plan, his love for us, and his plan of salvation to his creation. So I'm only going to stick with what the Bible says about this. So you may have heard about other teachings, you may have read other books where somebody says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord revealed the dark secrets of Satan's kingdom to them. I'm not going to address that other than to point that the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus, not Satan. So if somebody's out there saying that the Spirit is revealing to this, I'm, I'm not going to criticize it, I'm just going to leave it right there. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. To do that... To understand Satan and his kingdom, we have to realize and accept a few things. The first thing is, we are at war. We're at war. Every single day of our lives, we are going to be at, in, at war. And whether you like it or not, you're a participant in this war. As soon as you were conceived, you became a soldier in this war, for better or for worse. 
This is a black and white issue. It's one of those issues in the spiritual realm that is absolute. You are a soldier. You can't be a conscientious objector. You can't claim you're a pacifist in this war. You can't run to Canada to escape it. Choosing to do nothing places you in the enemy's camp. And yes, it's that black and white. You're at war. And as a soldier in the war, we need to identify who our enemy is and target that enemy exclusively. And that is critical because we're not going to carpet bomb London if we're getting attacked from Afghanistan, are we? We're going to focus on who the enemy is. And the Bible states very emphatically here in Ephesians that our battle is not, is not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. Let me say it one more time. It is a spiritual battle. That's why I get concerned with pastors, churches, and Christian organizations trusting in worldly methods and worldly people to accomplish their goal. And when major Christian leaders get behind political candidates who then turn out to be less than desirable, it brings shame and reproach upon the gospel, and it destroys their credibility to the world. So I'm very, very careful about doing that with our church and focusing on Jesus, because Jesus is the only person who's going to fix this country. Political and earthly solutions to a spiritual problem only makes the spiritual problem worse. And that brings us to one of our most important points about spiritual warfare. And that's a verse found in the Corinthian um, record in the Bible. It says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not of this earth, but they're mighty for pulling down strongholds. Our weapons are not carnal. Our weapons are not the weapons of this earth. You will not spread the gospel of Jesus Christ by the end of an M4 machine gun. Let me give you an example using worldly tactics versus spirituals. On the issue of homosexuality, throughout all biblical history, the church has held that homosexuality, particularly when it is practiced, not necessarily the thoughts, but when it is practiced, is a sin. We have 6,000 years of settled moral and biblical thought that has reflected the nature, the character, and the plan of God in regards to human sexuality and practice. And for several millennia now, the churches have held that moral line, and that's a good thing. We should hold to the, the gospel that was given to us. And it was such an obvious reality to the world that there was no question that same-sex or same-gender attraction was not natural, nor moral, nor God's way or God's plan for us to live our lives. Unfortunately, because it was such a settled issue, many preachers would often use very derogatory and shameful and hurtful language to describe people who struggled with this sin. I've, I've, especially down south, you really, really hear them railing against it and using language I wouldn't want to use from the pulpit or even away from the pulpit. And they made a critical error that is sometimes common amongst preachers. Sometimes, you know, we're standing up here and we can get going and, and things fly out of our mouth that are, are not, necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily godly. They attacked the person instead of the sin. And in doing so, they created within the, the hearts and minds of people that the church, all the church is about is, is some uh, group of people who are intolerant or, or hate these kind of people over here. 
And they did this while ignoring sins just as destructive to the individual Christian as well as the church. Sins like gossip or pride or gluttony or lust. They would ignore that, but they'll, they'll pick on the homosexual over here because they're an easy target. In our very cynical culture today, those outside the church have correctly called us hypocrites with that and picking and choosing the sins that we focus on. And that today has led to this huge backlash in our culture against anybody who would say that homosexuality or homosexual sex is a sin. There are two recent examples about how different churches attack this very controversial issue that I want to compare. How many people have heard of the Westboro Baptist Church? If you don't know who they are, they're a group of Baptists, kind of, and um, loosely associated with the Baptist Church. It's, it's kind of, I just want to call them the Westboro Church because I have a lot of friends that are Baptists and they're nothing like them. But these are the people who hold up signs at funerals, denouncing homosexuals as perverts, Satan's spawn, that the reason American military people personnel are dying is because America supports gay people and all that. They say that God hates all and use derogatory word for gays and basically is waiting for all of them to die so God can roast marshmallows over their suffering spirits as they burn in hell. That's kind of the, the, the picture of God that they create. Now they have zero influence on this culture. They're used as a, as a parody or a, a something that is built up to say this is what all Christians are like. They're used by the liberal media to bring shame to the gospel that this is the typical Christian thinking about this issue. But there is another way that I saw. There is a church in Seattle, it used to be Mars Hill Church, whose leader was Mark Driscoll. Now Mark is a very gifted teacher. He's a, a teacher that really can speak to millennials especially. And he teaches in a very unique yet very biblical way and he came under fire for saying that homosexual relationships were sinful. He teaches the Bible, the way it's supposed to be taught. His messages are shared and they often go viral. They're live streamed, they're available on YouTube. And when he taught about homosexuality, that sermon was shared thousands of times and came to the attention of gay rights groups. The following week after he did this teaching, there was large protests at his Saturday night service. They were out there shouting and throwing things and spitting on people and all kinds of stuff. And they, his leadership found out that there was an even bigger protest scheduled for his four um, Sunday morning services he was having the next day. And they're going to have the media there and they're going to show the intolerant Christians and all that kind of stuff and how, they can, how evil they were and all that kind of stuff. Well, Mark's leadership team heard about that. They all came in early Sunday morning before the protesters came. They set up tents with food, water, and coffee and chairs for the protesters. Even, as I said, tents, because it's Seattle and it's always raining. The workers there who were serving, they ignored the insults. They ignored the screaming. They ignored the people who were even spitting on them and throwing rotten vegetables and eggs upon them. And they served with a smile. They ignored the vitriol but they, and loved on the people. And they were supported by dozens of people inside the church who had dedicated their entire day to fasting and praying for the people who were out there. Amen. Do you know what the result was? Dozens and dozens, maybe even a few hundred, 
of hardened atheist gay people and gay rights supporters coming to faith in Jesus. Didn't Jesus allude to this? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what this showed us is that using the weapons of God's love will always, 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 always make impotent the weapons of hate. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty for pulling down strongholds, aren't they? That's why God tells us to put on His armor. When Satan's forces were enticing those protesters to to spit on Mars Hill's workers or or throw rotten eggs and vegetables at them or get in their face and scream and spit horrible profanity and names at them, it never touched them because they had... God's armor bounced right off. They were able to stand against the attacks and the schemes of the evil one. And that's how we stand against the attacks of the enemies in these last days. If we understand that this battle is not fought against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, then we will see clearly to fight this battle in the spiritual realm, using spiritual weapons and principles and achieving victories where only God gets the glory. One of the ways that we defeat our enemy is to understand his motives and why he is so set on our destructions. So let's just take a few moments this morning and look at the history behind this conflict. Don't worry, the Packers don't play until 7.30, so you're not going to miss the game if we go long. I looked. This war most likely began a short time after Adam was created. We don't have an exact date. The Bible doesn't say when Satan fell, but it was sometime after Adam was created. But we know from the Bible that it was after God finished creation. There's two verses that I want to consider here that tells us about our enemy. And the first one is found in Ezekiel 28. Now, Ezekiel 28 refers directly to Lucifer. Lucifer was Satan's name before he rebelled against God. Now, it is very important for us to realize that Lucifer, or Satan, is a created being. He is not God number two. He is not the yin to God's yang. He is not equal with God in any way. He is a created being. The only difference is that part of his created nature is a cherub, is that he possesses a greater spiritual power, knowledge, and abilities than we do. But it does not make him a god. He is also a being of, create, of incredible beauty, who is created to guard God's creation and, leads the heavenly host, and lead the heavenly host to worship God. So let's look at a, a short version of the biblical account of this. In Ezekiel 28.15 it says, You are blameless in all of your ways. Talking about Lucifer. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So that was kind of talking about what happened 
in creation when, when Satan rebelled that he was cast away from God. And we see another view of this from the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12. John is being given a very panoramic, quick view of the history of the conflict to date. And I'm going to read um, this, this history of the conflict with a little bit of commentary in here. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it said that a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed in the sun, this is representing the nation of Israel, which brings forth the Messiah who is the light of the world. With the moon under her feet and her head, a crown of 12 stars. A crown of 12 stars refers both to the patriarchs, the sons of um, Jacob, and the apostles. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And note this, this next verse. His tail swept down a third of the stars, representing the angels of heaven, and he cast them down to earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, this is Jesus the Messiah, one who will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, where she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we see what happened in Ezekiel 28 here. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fight, fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and now there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now these two references describe our enemy. Satan is a disgraced created being that seeks revenge on God for casting him out of heaven. And Satan knows that the only way to get to God, that he can't stand against God in a face-to-face -face fight. It's not like they can, they can meet at high noon on city street and have a boxing match and Satan has any chance against God. Satan knows that. But he knows that the best way that he can hurt God, the best way that he can, he can stab God in the heart, was to lead God's most treasured creation, which is you and me, all of humanity, in rebellion against him. Because he knows that God's righteous nature, his holy nature, demands that sin has to be punished. Which means that his prized creation, his most, the most valuable thing to God, would be separated for him for all eternity. That's the nature of our enemy. That's what drives him, the destruction of God's most treasured creation, you and me. That's his focus, that's his mission, and his purpose. So since we've identified the enemy, let's look a little bit at his kingdom for a moment. We're at war against an organized kingdom. This is not some loose, random collection of spirits that are just out there doing their own thing. Jesus addressed this thought himself when the Pharisees accused him of having or using demonic power to cast out demons and heal people. He said, if Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom's going to fall. 
Jesus just brought him back to common sense. Satan can't be going against Satan or his kingdom won't stand. The fallen angelic beings who are in league with Satan are loyal to that kingdom. If the kingdom of darkness has any advantage to us as in the kingdom of light, it's this. They understand the power of unity better than we do. They are completely loyal to that kingdom. I mean, you don't see an, a demon getting angry at Satan and going and forming hell number two, do you? You don't see a group of them forming together and saying, you know what, we have to leave the first church of Satan over here and, and form the second church of Satan over here. They understand the value uh, and, and importance of unity. It should be noted, first, that Satan is a master counterfeiter. He has no creative ability within himself. The only thing he can do is take what is already created and twist it to his own evil purposes. And so he sat up, set up a kingdom similar to the kingdom of God that has rank and structure and position. He set his kingdom up the same way. And you see this here in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So Paul is showing us that sometimes we focus on the wrong enemy when we get mad at the, at the evil of this world as perpetrated by human beings. We don't see the correct enemy. The correct enemy is what is standing behind them and driving these people toward evil. Then he gives the truth statement here. He says that we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if we were to outline this the way the Greek language is set up, the Ephesians was written in Greek, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces would be separate bullet points within this paragraph. And understand that these bullet points are not really something to spend a lot of time studying as individual topics. I know that there's, there are some churches out there and they write books and encyclopedia sets practically that, about this. It's meant to show us that there is indeed organization within the demonic kingdom. And this idea of kingdom order within Satan's realm makes sense from this perspective. Satan is not a god. Satan does not have divine attributes. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He is not omnipotent and all-powerful. So he has to have rank and structure within his kingdom in order to get anything done. So let's look at these uh, things briefly one at a time. And these are just some of the historic church understanding and coming from the exact meanings within the Greek language. What we're seeing here is a command structure. It's kind of like a pyramid with Satan being on top. Underneath him would be rulers and principalities. It is believed that these are the level immediately beneath Satan. And it's analogous to having the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. Or if you come from a, a Catholic background, they, they think that there's a, a third archangel called Raphael. I don't know about that. It's taken from extra biblical literature. But they believe that there's a third archangel. But So we, we understand that they control probably these two or three or however many rulers and principalities they are in Satan's kingdom, answer directly to Satan and they control people under them. They would be like the admiral or general in today's military. They're, they're at the top of the food chain here. There are authorities and powers. Under the rulers and principalities, those are most likely areas or some, pe or some people 
believe that they control either areas or they control the spread of specific sins. They would be like a captain of the ship or a, a colonel of a land force or an air wing. I remember you, James, because you were in the Air Force. I believe it's an air wing. would be that, that large division in the Air Force. And they, they're going to control large swaths of the demonic kingdom. Then you have the powers under the authorities. They execute influence over specific areas, targeting groups or prominent individuals within the church like deacons, pastors, elders, denominational leaders, those kind of things. These would be the lieutenants in the army. Then there's the forces of evil. These are the, the ground forces within ki Satan's kingdom. These are the, the foot soldiers and individual squads of demons that harass individuals and churches. Now, there are some points about these divisions within the kingdom of darkness that I want to talk to. This is largely informational to you. It's, it's not even something we can use. It's just something to bring understanding to our minds. We do not pray to or against any of these ranks in the kingdom of darkness. We don't need to address it. Now, I know that there are, are many teachings out there that says you have to identify the strong men over the top of your city and bind that strong men and, and do all this kind of stuff. You know what? Jesus has already defeated the enemy. The only thing we are told to do in these scriptures is stand. That's it. Jesus is the focus of our lives. Not demonic powers, not strong men, not even individual demons. There is nowhere in the Bible that the members of the early church directly confront Satan in his kingdom. You didn't see him leading prayer services like that. In fact, it was rather extraordinary for them to focus on individual demons, when, even when directly confronted by them. Paul, for example, put up with one for days before casting it out. The plain fact about the and the truth about Satan and his kingdom is this. God calls peop his people to study him and his kingdom. Amen. Again, this book is about God's kingdom and his plan of salvation for all humanity. It is not about Satan's. Satan, we have to deal with Satan's kingdom, but let God deal with Satan's kingdom. If we simply learn this book so that we understand God's kingdom, that's all we need to know. Let God worry about the God stuff. Just like the Secret Service trains to study exactly what a dollar bill or a $20 bill looks like so they can easily spot the counterfeit, we should study God. We should focus on God. We should worship our God in word and in life. We should know his word. We should know his heart. We should know his plan for us and not be so concerned with the counterfeit. That's how you walk in victory. That's how you defeat Satan and his kingdom. And that is how you stand in victory against him. And the final key to the spiritual warfare that we find within these two verses is this. It says to put on the whole armor of God and stand. There's a reason why so many Christians live defeated today when it comes to spiritual warfare. And it's because we only pick and choose from the armor of God that we want to wear that day. And we're missing pieces of that armor. And then we, we think that God somehow is missing, missing out on being able to help us. And we blame God for things. But the armor was never meant to be worn as individual pieces, but as an entire unit to protect us. 
I've, it, all of you, most of you know that, you know, I'm going through firefighting school right now, and it would be like going into a fire without my hood on. Now, a hood covers, it's a Nomax hood, it covers your, um, the back of your head and around to your mask and, and seals in so the heat doesn't hit your, the side of your uh, face and your hair. The reason, they started the, wearing these in the 1980s um, because they found that the fires were getting hotter a lot faster. And they did some tests, they found that human hair melts at 205 degrees. Your average temperature of a room on fire is over 350 degrees. So if you don't wear your hood, you end up with third degree burns over your head and your ears, and your ears will literally burn away if exposed to that for too long. We learned that we need to carry all of our gear and wear it correctly to be able to survive and thrive in a fire so that we can fight it, put it out, and rescue people. What happens when a person tries to wield the sword of truth without the helmet of salvation is you get a story like the seven sons of Sceva. If you don't remember that from the book of Acts, seven sons of a Jewish chief priest decide that they're going to become exorcists. And they start going around casting demons out of people. They didn't believe in Jesus. They barely probably believed in God, but they thought, you know, I can get some money, get some fame for myself, you know, make myself look good, and, and start going out and casting out demons until they actually ran into a demon. He said, you know, they would go out and say, well, according to the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I cast you out. And the demon looked back at him and said, well, Paul, I know. Jesus, I definitely know. Who are you? What did the Bible say then? They all got their butts kicked by this one guy, and they had to run out of the house naked and bleeding. That's what happens to us when we try to fight against the kingdom of darkness or try to stand against the kingdom of darkness, and we don't have our armor in place. We have no righteousness. Your shield of faith is going to do you no good. Because you show by your actions that, what you, be that you believe that what you believe isn't really real. Right? If we don't have righteousness in our life, how can we have faith? Right. If you don't put on the footwear of the gospel of, of peace and share your faith by word and action, you can't stand against the devil's attack because you're not wearing the footwear. Your feet are not planted upon that sure foundation. Is it? We need to put on the whole armor of God. Because today you're going to need it more than ever if you're going to survive in this world. The Bible talks about men whose heart will fail them for fear in the last days. I don't want us to be one of those people. Amen?